Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edifying episode of The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. And here's your host, Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back to The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. This is going to be an edifying episode. That I like that is, word. That it is. I edifying. like that word. Yes. That, that's a good word. It's you good haven't word. used that one before. No, I haven't. People don't know, right? Literally seconds before the cameras went live, Blake was saying, have I used this word before? Have I used this word before? <laughs> I don't remember. So <laughs> professional shows would write this stuff down. <laughs> well, we've done so many shows, you know. Of course, we we don't write anything down, no, no, but professionals would. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so at facebook.com slash TGS Alan Mosley. Twitter is at Alan and Mosley, but you don't have to do any of that because you just go to our website, which is thegoldstandardpodcast.com, as well as you can support the show there through the donation link or on Patreon, which is also patreon.com slash TGS Alan Mosley. So really, you should just go to every website you know, type in slash TGS Alan Mosley, see what comes up. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'm there. there. Yeah, you are there. I'm on at least three of them out of <laughs> billions. That's right. you know, yeah. And most of them have like naked people on them, but for the ones that have libertarianism on them, and you type slash TGS Alan Mosley, there might be. I'm glad you know, you're not in the naked ones. Yeah, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm not in the naked ones. <laughs> so we actually have to keep the intro kind of short today because yes. we have a really long interview spot. But it's totally worth it because we have the legendary Lou Rockwell, yeah. founder and chairman of the Mises Institute, so on the program today. So Holy moly. Yeah. I'm not going to say – I'm a little nervous. You're nervous? You shouldn't I, be nervous. I don't, I don't get shook that easy. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a little nervous just because people – especially younger folks, people who are newer to that line of thinking, maybe people who don't know a lot about Mises, they don't realize what an incredible benefactor Lou Rockwell has been to the community. Uh, untold amounts of works made available for free um, – I mean, just so many resources at people's fingertips. There's really no excuse for people to have not delved into some of the great works because they're right there. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you can't mess this stuff up. No. I say that all the time. Yeah. Obviously, you can yeah, cause because like 99% <laughs> of people do, but you, you can't mess this stuff up. But before we kill the intro, we got to do a meme of the week That's really right. quick. We're going to do a meme of the week. And full disclosure, we didn't pick the spiciest of memes out of right. respect. To Lou being on the program today. But this was actually sent to us by our friend from the Anarcho-Christian right. Podcast, Stephen Rose. Here we go. He, he actually tagged me ready? on Twitter and on Facebook with this meme. Obviously, obviously it made, made, it, Boom. made him think about me. Oh. It says, of course, it's a prequel meme. Yes. Star yes, Wars is. prequel meme. Uh-oh. I failed you, Anakin. I have failed you. Anakin says, I should have known you would think a hot dog is a sandwich. <laughs> Anakin, <laughs> it's meat between bread. From my point of view, it belongs in its own separate category. Well, then you are lost. Oh. A hot dog is a sandwich. We might, we might get into that later. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll get into that. <laughs> How could, you know, believe it or not, a friend of mine actually messaged me and said, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would ask Lou that question because huh. it's just, you know, it's just silly yeah. and there's, there's so much, there's so many great things you guys could talk about. Why waste time with that? <laughs> I say, I say, no, sir. How, no, sir. How would it be the gold standard if the guest can come and go and not have to answer the question that truly plagues our greatest thinkers? Yes, yeah. that's, that's true. So we'll, we'll, we'll get around to it. That's right. I'll figure out a way to get it in. But we're going to have to cut this short because this is we have to have every minute possible for that's this right. interview. It's going to be worth it. We will be right back after the break with Lou Rockwell. 
Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. Email us at tgsalanmosley at gmail.com. Hey, did you see the uh, playoff games last weekend? Oh, you're into the sports ball game. Sports Ball with Mike Meharry and Alan Mosley. Sportsballpodcast.com Sports Ball is not a libertarian sports show. It's a sports show done by a couple of libertarians. For when you need your bread and circuses. Guys, welcome back to The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. We are here with our guest for today, which doesn't need very much of an introduction. Uh, we are very happy to have him on the show. He is the founder and chairman of the Mises Institute, and you can find their website at Mises.org. We are here with Lou Rockwell. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Alan. Great to be on your show. Well, you know, we had discussed topics to talk about today uh, before you came on, and I'll tell you what, I'm regretting it a little bit. When last night I was doing my notes for the show, and I had said, we're going to talk about some of the emerging candidates for 2020, and yet again, it's another election cycle where <laughs> there's, there's, there's more candidates than I have fingers, so I'm already lost. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. I hope there are uh, maybe 35 Democrats. <clears throat> I'd, like a, I'd like to see them have to have a gigantic stage to put them all on. Now, b- before we get into the specifics of, of some of the, the highlights of the individual candidates, just, is, is this more a recent phenomenon, or has there been more election cycles in the past that I'm just too young and naive to remember where you have these wide stages with 8, 10, 12, 15, 16 podiums. I mean, it, it, it just seems so weird for the average voter to even look at. Well, I think that there have been uh, maybe not this many candidates ever, but there have been significantly more candidates than were ever allowed on, on the stage. Mm-hmm. So they uh, would just typically pick the, uh, the uh, two or three top people and maybe leave out three or four others. So this time, I guess they're going to have everybody and uh, I'm all for it. As I say, I think it's going to be hilarious. <laughs> hilarious and evil, of course. Oh, yeah. I, 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 they're, they're definitely going to give us plenty of sound bites to talk about. So I, I want to, I, I guess we'll, we'll start with the Republican side really quick because it's, it's going to be a much shorter part of the conversation. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you the quick softball. Is there going to be anyone of note or relevance that's actually going to attempt to primary Donald Trump? Well, I think it's very possible that Romney is going to try to do that. Okay. He certainly is hostile to Trump, and uh, uh, not in a good sense. There are plenty of things to be upset with Trump about, uh, but, of course, uh, Romney is upset with him for the few decent thing he's, uh, things he's done. And uh, so I think that's possible. Also, Kasich, the, the, uh, I guess he's now the former governor of Ohio, uh, some chance he's going to do it, but I, think that's, I don't think either one of these guys have a chance. And Trump will uh, easily be the nominee. Now you mentioned John Kasich, and I and I and I saw him in in my notes as well. He hasn't he hasn't declared that he's going to run, but he's still on the maybe list, according to mm-hmm. New York Times. It it seems odd to me that a Kasich would still be hanging around because this isn't his first <laughs> rodeo, and he's. I mean, has he ever had any traction anywhere? Well, I guess he did in Ohio when he ran for governor. But yeah. no, not otherwise. And of course, he, these people, once they get bitten by the bug, they uh, feel that really it ought to be, it ought, they ought to be the ones to be uh, nominated and to be elected. 
and they just can't believe that they didn't happen to them. And so I guess uh, he and also, of course, Romney was the nominee, a very unfortunate occurrence before, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that he wants to do it again. Yeah. There's all kinds of uh, rumors that, I think, reliable rumors that that's his plan. Now, I, I could definitely see Romney at least being a semi-legitimate contender, if we, if we even want to go that far. Uh, but but again, it just it's it seems to me, and 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 in historical precedent, I think tends to lean towards this that it's it's very seldom that you see uh, politicos enter and enter and exit the mainstream back and forth two or three times, and then find success way down the road. I mean, surely there's Republican strategists that are talking to these guys and telling them your your best your best opportunities are behind you. Well, the neocons all love Romney. And uh, they're pushing him to run, and they're promising him uh, all kinds of money and support uh, if he does so. So uh, will that uh, will that uh, bring stars to his eyes and get him to do it? I think he has, you know, no chance whatsoever. But um, you know, I'd be glad. I, I, I just think it'd be more fun if he were if he were if he were in the uh, in the contest, even though I can't stand him. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm definitely in the same boat with you there. But before before we move on to the Democrats, I, I just want to get a quick explanation from you. So why specifically does Mitt Romney have no chance against Donald Trump? Well, I think it's I think because of his, the, his positions. I mean, he's he's uh, he's much the left of Trump and uh, um, he did badly the last time. I just think he has, you know, has, has no chance. Uh, just because he's an unple- he's un- he's unpleasant, uh, and um, he's a neocon, so he wants you know war with Russia and all the various things the Democrats want. So it's um, I, I must say I, I don't think he has a chance. I certainly hope he doesn't have a chance. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, people joke about the fact that Bill Crystal is always wrong, and Crystal uh, likes Romney, so uh, uh, maybe that's by itself an indication that Romney has no chance. Well, you've you've said Bill Crystal on the program, so we already have to delete this whole this whole interview and start over. Uh, well, it, I, I'll, I'll ask you one more, I guess, one more follow up on the Republican side of things before we move on. I think one of the biggest. Uh, criticisms of Trump, at least from, from our end, because the, the, the NCAP side, typically we have no dog in the fight. It's that Trump talks such a good game during the elections of distancing himself from the neocon war state, but yet it seems like the swamp caught up to him and he appointed so many, you know, you're thinking of Pompeo's, you're thinking of John Bolton's, have now, have now meandered their way into in, into the Trump White House, so you're telling me then Elliot Abrams, yeah, yeah, Abrams is that, but but the neocons are not happy with that amount of influence. They would still rather <laughs> see Trump go. No, they still they still hate him, and of course these are these are people who are in effect uh, um, subversives within his administration. Uh, why he appointed them, I, I, will we ever know? I, for example, Elliot Abrams wrote a, a very nasty article about. Trump before the uh, after he was nominated, and uh, Trump said this guy would never get a job in my administration. Mm-hmm. Then of course he appoints him as the special envoy to destroy Venezuela, which uh, Abrams is very happy to try to do. But uh, it's <laughs> uh, it's another indication of Trump betraying his base and betraying uh, the promises that he made when he was running. 
And yeah. then we have to, you know, look at the budget that just came out yesterday, $4.7 trillion, because by far the biggest budget ever. And, um, and of course, uh, more money for the military. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I must say he hasn't, uh, I remember Ron Paul being asked, what did he like? Was there anything after an interview, anything he liked about Obama? And he said, well, he hasn't bombed Iran yet. <laughs> so we can, you know, we can say the same thing about Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hasn't bombed Iran yet, although it's, it sure looks like uh, he would like nothing better than to go to war against Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, he would like to overthrow the government of, uh, of Venezuela as well and cause another Libya. I don't know. Certainly a tremendous amount of destruction and death. And because, uh, you know, because the Maduro is not obeying him. So it's, it's uh, and of course, uh, we had um, uh, Pompeo said, and Elliot Abrams saying that we're going to have to bring back the Monroe Doctrine. And my guess is uh, nobody's read the Monroe Doctrine. If you read the Monroe Doctrine, it's an interesting, first of all, an interesting, an interesting document. But Monroe in there says that, uh, we're going to promise, if we were, to, we're telling the European powers, you're going to stay out of this hemisphere. This hemisphere is in our control. A very imperialist and unfortunate comment, of course. But he said in return, we'll stay out of your hemisphere. We won't, we won't bother anybody in Europe. We won't, we won't uh, do anything in, in, in that hemisphere. So somehow that part of the Monroe Doctrine dropped out immediately. And, uh, uh, and again, I, you know, I don't... I, and, Nobody, nobody knows that. But again, it's an interesting thing to read. Uh, uh, it's, it's uh, all these things are interesting. I, I remember some time ago when reading the the uh, treaty that established the U.S. base at Guantanamo, and of course the U.S. Mm-hmm. has been holding that to uh, torture people. And the do- and the, the U.S. promise in its in its uh, treaty with Cuba um, imposed on Cuba, I might add, that it would have this gigantic base. But it would only be used for a coal, as a coaling station for naval ships. That is to refuel U.S. Navy ships, and for no other purpose, not to, for example, uh, torture people uh, and uh, have prisoners there. So again, the you know, U.S. Uh, doesn't keep its word, as I guess everybody, almost everybody, who's ever had a treaty with the U.S. knows a full, a full well. Well, I'm, I'm, I was reminded as as you were speaking just now. Um, I, I forget. I, I don't know how many laws we're up to now, but it's it's the wood. It's the Tom Woods law of no matter who you vote for, you always get John McCain. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard that one before. But yeah, it, a horrible, it's, truthful it's, well, it, comment. Yes, it's 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 so disappointing because I mean, even as recently as maybe six weeks or eight weeks ago, we were we were staring down at least comments from the president that potentially there was going to be a withdrawal from Syria, which absolutely is is long overdue, just like with everywhere. Um, and yet, it seems like we've already walked back on that, and now Trump is right. saying that well, we're going to have to leave a presence there and that sort of thing. And, Same and so, with Afghanistan, of course. Yeah, of course. And and so again, I just, I, I guess, I'm just, I'm, I'm left with this hopeless cynicism of even, even, even when a candidate does come along that says the right words, even, even when they intimate in office that they might make that type of move, uh, the neocons still get their way. And it just, and and if anything, it's really a window into the lust for power that neocons have, that they have that much influence over a sitting president that president that at least on the surface seems antagonistic towards them, and yet that's still, they're getting everything they want, but that's still not enough. Uh, this, you know, there's, there's a, a, a young comedian, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I don't remember his name, Bill, 
uh, I'll think of his last name, but he had a, a part of his act where he would talk about when a new president is newly elected, they take him into the uh, in, into a room at the White House, and there are all the heads of all the Praetorian agencies, all the, the military, the CIA, the NSA, and uh, all the rest of them. And they play the real Zapruder film, not the Zapruder film that we've all seen, but the actual one. And uh, they turn up the lights, and they turn to him and say, any questions? <laughs> yeah. So, right, I mean, so that... I'm sure that's not actually true, but certainly it's true in effect. So uh, does Trump really want to do all this stuff? Is he being threatened? Um, Was he a liar from the beginning? It's uh, it's tough to know, but he certainly has disappointed uh, his supporters. And, you know, this this budget business, uh, I mean, he's, he's outdone any other president in his budget deficits. And it looks like with this new budget, it's going to be massively increased even over his previous ones. So it's uh, it's more than disappointing. It's outrageous. On the other hand, I guess a lot of people will end up voting for him as versus a socialist. Mm-hmm. So let's let's uh, let's pull away from the Republicans for a moment to move to the potential Democrats for 2020. Now, the last list that I saw had 16, and I and I actually think that my list was abbreviated. <laughs> I think it's actually closer to 18, if you count Bernie Sanders as a Democrat as opposed to an independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but we'll, just for the sake of brevity, we'll say 16, because otherwise we'll be here all night. I, I don't want to talk about all these jokers individually, but uh, from, from a wide view, before we get into the and gritty uh how many of those 16 do you see as candidates that really have any genuine shot at the democratic nomination i think uh probably three or four okay i think uh, bernie sanders is no question he's ahead okay and some of the polls show biden ahead but i think that once biden is actually running Mm -hmm. uh that won't be that will be no longer the case um so i think i'm afraid that bernie is, is probably going to be the the uh, the person, although you know the, the probably the actual person uh, who ought to be the candidate in in the in the view of a lot of her supporters is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. She's too young to be the candidate, but uh, she is in effect the candidate because of they're all adopting her policies, whether it's mm-hmm. the Green New Deal or uh, the other horrible things that she's proposing. Now, I want to back up a second because you're, you're correct that uh, Biden is still on the, uh, according to the New York Times, he's likely to run but hasn't officially announced. Now, are you, are you trying to tell me that announcing his candidacy is the worst thing he can do for his poll numbers? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, of course, nobody's targeting him now because he's not a candidate. Sure. Once he's a candidate, there's a lot of stuff in his background, I think, that will bother the Democrats. And um, they're, they're going to attack him. And, of course, it, it's funny that all these people who are oriented towards young candidates, allegedly, uh, their top people are all uh, elderly, same as in, of course, the leadership in the, in the House of Representatives and also in the Senate. Um, so uh, I, I think that Biden, yes, will, will, uh, be, uh, will end up like Elizabeth Warren, not for exactly the same issues, but he's going to end up being a lot less popular than he seems to be now once he's actually the candidate and they all... I have their sights on him. 
Now, you know, I've heard people make uh, make the jokes in the past that you don't really have to go that far into history to see political figures that would no longer fit with their party in modern day. Like a uh, a mid '90s Bill Clinton would be nowhere near left enough for the modern Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, Another broad question before we get into some of the specific candidates. It seems to me on the surface that, in general, a lot of the Democratic hopefuls are just racing to see who can be the furthest left. But, you know, our, our, our you know, civics and political 101 courses in school tell you that it's, it's the candidates that can get the biggest chunk of the middle are the ones who win the election. So what, what am I missing there? It's, it seems like a counterintuitive strategy to be racing to see who's the most radical leftist. But it, on the surface, it seems like that's what so many of them are doing. So what, what am I missing? Well, I think you're. I think you're right, and I think probably there's no past president who would pass pass muster, including Obama. I I, I must say I liked it when Ilan Omar uh, criticized him as mm-hmm. just a pretty face who uh, engaged in a policy of murder overseas, and of course that's true. His his uh, drone policy killed many many thousands of innocents, and uh, 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 and lots of other people that consider non innocents. Um, in Afghanistan and many other countries, so I think that you know even you know Obama would have trouble if he if he were able to run again. It's an interesting, it's very interesting, and it's probably uh, I guess it appeals to young people. There was a poll out just a couple of days ago that said that uh, half of the American millennials would like to live under a socialist regime. Of course, yeah. none of them know what socialism is, but they nevertheless like the idea of it because it just you know it sounds sweet, it sounds good. It, Equality and all these other uh, evil ideas. Well, it, it, you know, again, it just it, it seems so odd because I my my default position in, in something like that often is that if someone is doing something that's counterintuitive to me, but I'm, presumably they have year if not decades of experience in their field, mm-hmm. and I'm certainly not an experienced Democratic hopeful for president, so I don't know anything. Is that if they're racing to the left when? when historical evidence would seem to suggest that racing to the middle is, is what wins you the election. Is, is that their way of saying that they believe that the electorate is shifting to the left, and so that's why they're shifting to the left? Well, remember, the, the nomination is a very different thing from the actual election. True. So it's true that uh, uh, they will run as a more so-called moderate candidate if they're running against Trump, uh, mm-hmm. whereas they would uh, tend to be very left-wing to try to get uh, the uh, the support of uh, of the billionaires who are left wing, as well as the uh, as well as young people, uh, so that and of course they're proposing that um, in Congress just the other day that the 16 year olds be allowed to vote, um, but why not have 12 year olds or eight year olds or whatever? It's uh, they want to of course increase the electorate as Hans Hoppe uh, has demonstrated when you increase the electorate. It, it expands the state, mm-hmm. and uh, ever since uh, the Americans had everybody voting, the state has done nothing but just expand uh, at, at a tremendous rate, and they want to make it even worse. Uh, also, they want to have illegal aliens being able to vote, and um, they want, I guess, anybody who, who can get into the country can vote. And, of course, these people are uh, will be easy votes for the Democrats, uh, because they come from countries that are socialist and uh, uh, they'll have no sympathy for libertarians, uh, as has been shown by the by a lot of uh, pol- polling work 
they have no, no sympathy for our kinds of views. They're all statists, and they bring that with them, so they're going to dramatically increase the number of statists in the electorate. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I must say it's, it's scary what's ahead. Uh, but at least we can have some fun with the election. I think these elections are always fun, and the so-called debates are always fun. And uh, I guess they're talking about having, because there are going to be so many candidates, having two different debates, two different Democratic debates chosen by lot each time. But I think that's not as interesting to have as everybody up there. So I guess we'll see. But uh, I think there's, there's fun times ahead, but who knows what's, what, you know, what happens after the election. Well, let's let's get into a few of these specifically before we move on. So I'll, I'll ask you I'll ask you a few uh, a few wide angle ones. Are are there any candidates among the current Democratic hopefuls that have any redeeming qualities whatsoever? Well, the, um, I must say the and I, I never thought I would say this, but I think the only candidate who uh, has got some redeeming qualities is. Uh, the former president of Starbucks and founder of Starbucks, um, and, uh, uh, and he's he's actually got some. He's, as compared to the Democrats, and he would have run as a Democrat, I think, in a normal in what he thinks of as a normal year. Um, he would have no chance now because he's he's not a socialist, and in fact, is very critical of socialism. Yeah. Uh, and so, will he run as an independent? I don't know. I, I noticed that uh, Mayor Bloomberg has decided he's not going to run, although he uh, keeps threatening it uh, each, each election cycle. Um, but I think the, what the Democrats who are actually running, no, I don't think there's, any, there's anybody who's got, so far as I can tell, any redeeming features. I mean, it's, it's sort of fun that Elizabeth Warren uh, claimed to be an Indian for so long, <laughs> and of course got her job by claiming to be an Indian, and, mm -hmm. and uh, just recently came out that when she joined the Texas Bar, uh, she's identified herself as an American Indian, so it's it's. She didn't say you know part. She just said an American Indian. Uh, and Harvard, when she was uh, on their faculty, described her as the first professor of color on the, uh, the Harvard Law Faculty. For she, she's she's a white woman. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But obviously, the Democrats think there's something wrong with that. So it's, uh, um, I think. You know, Warren is somebody who's got no chance whatsoever, even though she tries to be uh, more left-wing than now, uh, just because I think the Indian thing has, has damaged her. And I, I, I thought so. As soon as I heard Trump referred to her as Pocahontas, <laughs> I thought that's, that's the end of her. And yeah. I think that's been pretty much the case. Now, I've, I've seen a lot in libertarian circles people talking about Tulsi Gabbard. And they, they mention her specifically, not that she is particularly different in, in domestic or economic policy, but she does seem to be anti-war, which would set True. her apart from most, for, for sure, if, if not all on both sides of the aisle at this point. Um, are, are, are you afraid, not that she's, she's nowhere remotely in the ballpark of a Ron Paul, but would, I, I feel like I already am beginning to see that she's becoming the next unperson by the mainstream media. That just because she disagrees with the party platform on that one thing, she's already uh, magically not involved in the polling, and she, they don't show her name on TV 
when they're showing other <laughs> candidates. Like it's you and I, you and I would know that that phenomenon very well. But it seems like it's already happening to her. But you look at Tulsi; she's from Hawaii. She's relatively young. Um, she was in the military. Uh, she she favors socialistic economic policies. You would think that that checks a lot of the boxes. But because she's anti-war, she doesn't exist. So they want to kill her, of course. That's true. Yeah. And uh, she's very smart, I might add, too. She's very articulate. And um, she's a very effective uh, spokeswoman. I, I, you know, I'd like, I'd like to believe that she means it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but you're right. I mean, there are, everybody hates her guts from the New York Times to the Washington Post to, to uh, all the other candidates and all the the Democratic uh, websites, they all just can't stand her. So maybe there's something good about her from that. Mm-hmm. Th- maybe she means it. That's what I hope. I, the, the way I'm looking at the election right now is is that if the opposite of Tulsi Gabbard then would be Kamala Harris, which is, which is another name that we don't say very often on this program <laughs> for obvious reasons, because Kamala Harris checks several of the same boxes, but she's perfectly fine with the warfare state. And, of course, professionally, she was a prosecutor in California and, and was, was more than happy to see the harshest sentences carried out to, the, to the, what I would consider to be innocent, but the, but the least fortunate mm-hmm. um, people to receive those, uh, receive those sentences. And so, you have, you, so just, just for those reasons alone, they seem to be pretty diametrically opposed. And really, other than that, it really just seems like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I, I really don't feel like any other, de- other Democratic candidates have put enough forward at this point that they're really in the conversation. Well, people like Kristen uh, Gillibrand are just, mm-hmm. uh, even, even though they think that by, by being as left as possible and as being social justice warriors to the nth degree, that they're getting somewhere, but of course they're not. So um, I think that uh, um, I, if Tulsi Gabbard means it, you know, I would. Uh, I'd love to see her. I'd love to see her go up against Trump, and can she beat him? I, you know, I, I I don't know, but um, they all. You're exactly right. They're all. They all hate her guts. Which is an indication that maybe she means it. Certainly, they're afraid she means it. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the key uh, issue in the Democratic Party as well as in the Republican Party: the warfare state, the empire, the worldwide empire mm-hmm. of American uh, uh, troops stationed in, in more than a hundred countries and uh, constant warfare that goes on. Whether it's you know Obama or uh, Clinton or or um, anybody else, any of the other Democrats. Roosevelt, Truman, uh, LBJ, I mean, they all, the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, has, has a terrible record of uh, killing people en on, on masse. And of course, this is what the state does best, uh, if that's the right word for it. They're able to massively kill uh, millions of people. So uh, I guess the Democrats would like to get back to that. And, and, and maybe Trump is not doing as much of that as they would like. I mean, he's not actually bombing people in Syria right now, so that's all to the good, even though he won't get the troops out. Uh, of course, they are bombing people in, in Afghanistan and uh, have done so for so many years. Um, so I was thrilled when he said we needed to get out of Afghanistan. He was going to hold peace talks with the Taliban. And you would need to hold peace talks with the Taliban to get their agreement not to uh, harry U.S. troops as they're leaving, just to let them leave in peace. And uh, no question, I guess, the Taliban would be 
the government, certainly they were a popular government uh, when the U.S. went in to overthrow them for reasons entirely ridiculous. It was because allegedly they had uh, given, given uh, um, uh, shelter to Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the U.S. said, so you've got to turn him over or we're going to bomb you. And the head of the Taliban said, well, where's your evidence that he did this? And so the, the, uh, uh, the Republican Secretary of State said, uh, uh, we're going to present a, the dossier to the U.N., not to you people, but to the U.N. showing, that, showing the, his guilt. They never did produce such a dossier. So uh, Taliban said, unless you can give us evidence as required under international law to extradite this man, uh, we're not going to do it. And uh, so the U.S., of course, replied with uh, bombs and uh, massive killing. So let's, uh, we're, before we move on from the political talk, let's, let's get out our crystal ball and try to do some prognosticating. Who do you think today, who wins the Democratic nomination? I'm, af- I'm afraid it's Bernie Sanders. I, 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 uh, I, when we look at the reception he's getting in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, mm-hmm. massive, uh, massive receptions. Um, they remind me a little bit of what happened to Ron Paul. Um, uh, if we had to say today, but of course, obviously things can change in a minute. Uh, there are things in Bernie's background too that might cause him trouble uh, mm-hmm. if really harped upon. So it's 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 tough to say. But if I had to put my money on one guy today, I would say Bernie Sanders. Do you feel pretty confident in saying that Trump wins a second term? No. Okay. I think that I, I think it's likely Trump wins a second term. But I don't think it's in the bag at all, and um, I guess he's going to—he he plans to talk about socialism. That's a powerful thing to denounce and to discuss. Um, but um, I think if it's—I think if it's Trump versus Bernie Sanders, I think Trump probably wins. But I'm—I'm I'm not sure Trump wins. And also, we have to—you know—know what's going to going to happen. Is he going to? Uh, massacre people in Venezuela or other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like they backed off somewhat. It looked like they thought that they were going to just uh, uh, pull the rabbit out of the hat and the Venezuelans would collapse and welcome the U.S. into run their oil industry, which, of course, as, uh, as uh, Elliot Abrams has said, it's going to be a great thing for big business in the U.S. to take over Venezuela. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure. Well, thanks very much for... for <laughs> Telling us that, Elliot, you warmongering creep. War criminal, of course, Elliot. Sure. One last question about uh, politicos that we can't stand, and we'll move on. Have we heard <laughs> the last of Hillary Clinton? Well, you know, it looked like just the other day she said, I'm not going to run. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then a few days later she said, well, I might run. So um, I'd like to think we've heard the last of her. Of course, it would be the best thing for Trump to face her again. Sure. Um, but I think that I think the Democrats don't want her. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that she would be humiliated, and that would be fun uh, <laughs> if, if she decides to run. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely, I mean, le- leave it to having on Lou Rockwell on the show to to talk about political theater. I know I know that that is that is right in your wheelhouse, and and I'd appreciate it too. But at this point, I tend to I tend to lean in the camp of. 
the the sooner that she no longer makes any uh, public appearances, uh, the sooner that the American consciousness that only goes about 15 minutes anyway can forget about her, and then we can all pretend that Hillary Clinton never happened. No, it's great. Of course, I'd like to see her... I'd like to see her prosecuted as Trump promised, but of course that's another promise he hasn't kept. Of course. So, yeah. so it's uh, she's she's a uh, she's part of the establishment, a very significant part of the establishment, and they're and they're protecting her. So I guess that's not going to happen. But it would be fun to see her go back to uh, Chappaqua and shut up. And of course, <laughs> she can take her husband with her too. Definitely. So. I, I want to spend the rest of the time that we have today. Um, I, I had talked to some of the fans of the show and, and, and some of our friends, and I, and I had said that you were going to be on the program, and we were talking about what are some good topics for us to discuss or maybe things that we haven't, haven't heard you talk about on other programs often or in the past or recently. And the, and the thing that came up most commonly was I'd really like to hear Lou tell us a story or two from – from the early days of founding the Mises Institute, uh, from, from working personally with people like Murray Rothbard. And, and the reason why I'd, I'd like to hear those stories is because, of course, I'm, I'm 33 years old. I turned 34 in September, and, and I, was, I was a libertarian-leaning individual before 2008. I, I was fortunate that I grew up in a, a southern household that was, that was a shoot-the-census-man-when-he-comes-up-the-driveway type of folks. <laughs> so I, I have that deeply embedded in my Tennessee blood. Um, but, but with that said, I know that there's a lot of young people, a lot of people that were stirred to action during the Ron Paul years, or, or a lot of people that have only found libertarianism recently, that they know the names, and perhaps they've even read a book or two, but they really don't have a lot of conjecture as to what kind of men some of those great figures in our movement were. And I was wondering if maybe you could share a story or two to, to help give some people light into who, what type of people these individuals were when they were still with us. Well, Murray Rothbard was uh, an extraordinary man. Not only was he a, uh, a genius, I would argue, a world-class genius, uh, but he was, unlike uh, other people I've met who were geniuses, he was very much down-to-earth. He was a humble guy, and uh, he never uh, paraded his, his intelligence and his vast knowledge in front of people, although if somebody asked him a question about something, he was happy to answer it. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember being in a... Uh, and I used uh, an academic used bookstore in New York with Murray and um, picking up a book. And I said, Murray, do you know this book? Is this worth my buying? And, of course, he'd read the book and knew everything about it. And so then I started playing a game with him, you know, picking up books at random. And he knew every single book I picked up. So he was uh, he was in vast reading. And, uh, by the way, we're the next book project of the Mises Institute is the long-lost fifth volume of his Conceived in Liberty, his, his uh, history of, the, of early America from the uh, earliest days up to the Constitution. And the, the fifth book never got published. He had, he had uh, written it all out in, 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 uh, and done it in handwriting uh, on uh, yellow sheets. And we had that, but none of us were able to ever decipher it. And he had not ever completed the job because... He had, he had done it in handwriting because he had a friend who had given him a, a uh, his used dictating machine that uh, dic- recorded uh, what you what you spoke on on uh, clear green discs, plastic discs, and so Murray recorded the whole book, 350 pages, and then when uh, Joey was taking the dictating machine to transcribe it, 
they all turned out to be garbage. They all turned out to just be unintelligible. And uh, so Murray was going to to uh, type out the whole thing at some point, and he never never did. Mm-hmm. He had other projects that he was involved in. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I thought maybe this fifth volume, which is about the the adoption of the Constitution and why it was a terrible idea and why crooked means were used to adopt the Constitution, uh, I had uh, thought we were never going to see it. But Patrick Newman, a former student of ours, now a young professor, was able to read this manuscript by, with great difficulty, but he did it. And so we have this book coming out. Uh, I must say it's a tremendous piece of work, so interesting, so revisionist, so brilliant, typical of Murray, just uh, f- filled with facts that other historians either neglect or don't know about, and um, uh, so beautifully written. And any of us who, anybody who's not read Rothbard, I can't uh, urge you more strongly to just pick up anything that he wrote. Um, uh, his book on his, his monograph on the anatomy of the state, for example, is a life-changing yes. uh, thing. They're so easy to read. He is mm-hmm. so effective at taking complicated ideas and making them understandable. Um, that this, this, is, this is another great book, and Patrick was the one who was responsible uh, for uh, bringing out Murray's last book, which was the uh, progressive era. So uh, there have been j- jokes around the Institute that Murray is far more, pro- you know, is far more uh, productive as a dead man than the other people, other scholars are alive. <laughs> um, but he was, he was uh, just tremendously fun, extremely funny. When he was in a room, everybody gathered around him to listen to him. And it wasn't, it wasn't more than 60 or 120 seconds for everybody as laughing out loud. I mean, he, he was like a stand-up comedian in addition to everything else about him. Extremely funny and extremely generous with anybody who wanted his time, um, young students, uh, anybody asking him a question. Um, he uh, uh, just couldn't be, couldn't be more generous. And, and uh, so he's funny, humble, generous, unbelievably knowledgeable, uh, and uh, just just a, a tremendous guide. I remember uh, Bob Higgs mm-hmm. uh, when, when he uh, read, when he did his his uh, one of his great books. He asked Murray to take a look at the manuscript, and he he said Murray sent him back about the thirty type pages of of uh, things to think about, people to read, and uh, Bob said he he took a year. To redo the book and, and, and to take account of all that Murray had, uh, wow. had uh, uh, told, and he knew more than Bob Higgs did about Bob Higgs's subject. Uh, Yuri Maltsev, who was a Russian economist mm-hmm. and uh, came to the United States and an associate of the Mises Institute, uh, uh, talked about getting a, a letter from Murray asking him, uh, was he interested in in uh, He's followed free market Russian economists from various stages of Russian history, none of which Yuri had ever heard of. And he'd, he'd gotten a PhD, and he had access to all the secret sort of the non-public divisions of the, of the Soviet library system. And so that he, that, uh, uh, so they allowed him to read Keynes was, you know, a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he said... He said Murray knew far more about Russian economics than he did, and this is just true across the board. The, the, the amount of the he, he just was uh, so brilliant, so, but so non-intimidating. Such a great teacher, 
and he loved teaching. And uh, I've had former students of his at uh, University of Nevada in Las Vegas say that he would start teaching the moment he came into the room, that he would start ta talking to the students as soon as he entered the door, and that uh, you had a number of these kids who took, who audited his courses once and twice again because everything was entirely different. He didn't, you know, his, he did a, one course on uh, American business history. They said the, the, the second and the third time they took it for not, for not credit for the second and third time, every single thing was different. This was the kind of teacher he was. He was, he was uh, just unbelievably eloquent, fascinating, um, fun, um, just, just, uh, and he spent endless hours in his office with students who wanted to meet with him. Um, just, just, uh, just an, uh, an amazing guy. And of course, what a help to the Mises Institute. I, I've told this story before. When I asked him if he would be our uh, academic vice president, and told him that I was uh, planning to start a Mises Institute. Uh, I've never seen anybody who actually leapt in the air a little bit and clapped his hands. <laughs> Joy. He was so happy because he loved. Mises so much as a man as well as as a as a uh, as an economist, and it was I had the same view of Mises, and in fact that's why I wanted to start the institute because I thought that uh, his reputation and and uh, the value of his work was becoming lost. The people weren't paying attention to him, and then I thought he deserved that for the hero he was, as well as of course for the being the great economist he was. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's 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 such an awesome account. And and as as you were talking, a, a, a guy that came into my mind was Harry Brown, and and the reason that na that the reason that name entered my mind is because I was just thinking the how important it is, but also how it's really a talent. It's it's really an ability unto itself to be able to um, absorb knowledge, to also to be able to translate it to the layman so that they can understand and they can really follow along but also to do it in the type of personal way that you're not it's it's not a sermon it's not a talking down to it's it's a conversation but mm -hmm. it's a, but it's a fruitful conversation with information and harry brown was such an an amazing actor at being able to do such a thing and so he was I, a star yeah i just as, and the whole time you were telling me i was like i i can see where harry brown gets it from then like i could see i can just imagine in my mind absorbing that information and then and then saying okay how can i translate this to a room full of people that maybe have never heard this once in their lives and whether they think it's crazy or whether they i leave them wanting more i hope at the very least i can do it in such a way that they want to listen and that seems to be a, a lost art. I had the honor to be the editor of Harry's first book, How You Can Profit from a coming, the Coming Devaluation. Mm -hmm. And it had been turned down by every other single publisher in the country that he could find. But I must say, the minute I started reading it, and I, the first chapter uh, is uh, just an extraordinary distillation of Austrian monetary economics for the, for, the, for the laymen, just tremendously eloquent. And of course, Harry... Such a great speaker, such a great teacher, um, and it, uh, any of us who knew him, uh, that was a great honor. If if you could, if you could give us one more story, uh, tell tell me a little something about Harry Brown, uh, maybe a little anecdote to to testify to his 
presence in a room, his ability to speak with people with, I'm not sure what the words I'm looking for here. He spoke very matter-of-factly, if that made sense. It wasn't a, this is what I think. It wasn't a, well, if I had my way. It was a, this is how things are. This is how economics works. This is how policy works. And this is this is how we can make the world better. Uh, it, there's, like I said, it's 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 really a skill to be able to speak confidently and matter-of-factly, but not pompously. It's hard to do for some people. Harry Harry was unbelievable, and I'll never forget that he was on a talk show after his book was published by Arlington House Publishers in New York. And uh, so, of course, I listened to it, and he did just uh, the, the most interesting. Uh, radio presentation I've ever heard on economics, and also talking about why he felt that there was a coming devaluation, which was he was entirely right about. Uh, but what what really got everybody's attention at, the, at our publishing company was the next day we got so many calls from bookstores wanting his book that we actually ran out of the first printing in wow. one day and had to go had to go back and reprint it. He he was he had the ability to get. He was just a great salesman of his own book, as mm-hmm. well as of the ideas contained in it. And um, he, he uh, uh, in that book, also recommended the what was then called the Pacific Coast Coin Exchange if you wanted to buy bags of silver. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I had the, uh, the man who was the, the head of the company tell me that, that Harry's mentioning of their company in his book made their company. I mean, that it brought so much attention to them and, and uh, so many sales that, uh, you know, he was forever grateful to Harry Brown. And Harry had that, he just, I mean, I don't want to call it salesmanship because that sort of is not quite it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, uh, again, he had tremendous knowledge. Uh, he, was, he was just, as you say, matter of fact, he was, and he, and he was just as good if you were having lunch with him. Uh, at the teaching you something as he was in a in a room, he was he was a star, and uh, I know, uh, all of us who knew him, I know miss him, and um, we've not had anybody like that in the Libertarian Party, with the exception, of course, of Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know we have, and of course, then we've had some non-Libertarians running for president <laughs> in the Libertarian Party too. We uh, we could do an entirely different episode based just upon that, <laughs> just upon the topic of where is the next Harry Brown? Because I, I certainly don't see him. I I, I, I don't know. I, I certainly don't see him in the party. We we've been pretty anti-Libertarian Party on this program, so I, I better stop there before I get myself into any more trouble. Um, <laughs> good, good for but, you. <laughs> yes. And I don't mean stopping. Well, Lou, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, I, it would it would be horrible for me to end this segment if we didn't mention really quickly uh, Mises.org, where everybody can go to learn about the Mises Institute, where there's there's such a wealth of information, of, of, of articles, of resources that are made available totally to, for free to people. Um, I, I see people comment on the Internet all the time. I say, you know, people saying, I've heard about this book, I've heard about that book. Um, this article, that author, or I, I heard about it on a program. I want to, I want to listen to it, or I want to read it. And to be able to tell people, well, you, you, you don't even have to search Amazon or Google or Audible. You can go to the Mises Institute, and you can do that for free. It's, it's such a, it's such a profound impact. But I also want to mention to people, LouRockwell.com. Uh, and the political theater blog especially, which is fantastic. And I also want to thank you as well because 
uh, I just actually, not, not even a few months ago, did I start writing articles to help support the show and, and to get the message out there. And uh, a good friend of ours, Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center, uh, he had said that the holy trinity of getting your articles published in the libertarian community are Fee, Mises, and Lou Rockwell. And I had Fee publish some articles, and I had Mises publish some articles. And thankfully, the most recent one that I did that was revisiting the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was on LouRockwell.com. And so now I've done it. Now I've, uh, I've, I've finished the holy trinity of publishing articles, so I can retire now happily. Uh, You're going to send me more, Alan. <laughs> well, 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 we're certainly going to try. So is there, are there any other links or tidbits that you want to add before we go? No, just that I, uh, I got to know Mises a little bit, not like I knew Mark Rothbard, who I had yes. talked to on the phone every day for years. Uh, but I, I, uh, when I worked for Arlington, that's the company that also published uh, Harry Brown's book uh, when uh, the president, great man Neil McCaffrey, called me into his office. He said, how would you like to be Ludwig von Mises' editor? So, <laughs> how does one my, answer such a question? I was in my early twenties. Well, obviously, I thought it was you know unbelievable. So this was not this was to bring back three of his books into print mm-hmm. and to publish a, a, a newly written monograph. So I got to know Mises a little bit. I got to know his wife uh, Margaret better, and I had dinner with them once. And um, as Murray said about Mises, he came from an. Uh, uh, an older and a better civilization of uh, pre-war Vienna. Uh, just a, a great gentleman, uh, beautifully dressed, beautiful manners. Um, and even though this was when I when I had dinner with him and Margaret, uh, it was towards the end of his life. Still, he was he was uh, just he, he was extraordinary. And uh, so I've always treasured that memory of being able to know him and uh, talk to him on the phone as well. And uh, so when I started the Institute, or I decided to start the Institute, the first person who's okay I got was Margaret von Mises, and she was very, very generous to give that to me and served as our first uh, chairman of the board uh, until her death. Uh, and she was a, a great guide, a great, uh, Murray referred to her after her death as a one-woman Mises industry. I mean, she'd been dedicated to getting... All, making sure all his books were in print mm-hmm. and everything was translated into as many languages as possible. And she, got, she did tremendous work. And uh, so I've been always very grateful to her for serving as our chairman and, uh, uh, of course, to Mises himself for being the reason for the Institute. Uh, well, speaking of that, since since you brought that up, I, I did have a couple more questions really quick. One, one sure. being, if... If, Mies, if, if, if gentlemen like Mises, if Rothbard, if Harry Brown were still with us today, what, do you, what sort of interaction do you, or impact do you think they would have on social media? Like, can you imagine a Harry Brown or a Murray Rothbard on Twitter? Well, I remember thinking when uh, Bush, uh, W. Bush started the Iraq War, I remember thinking if Murray were alive, uh, he would be overnight the key anti-war voice in the entire world in the English language. Sure, he was that effective and that and that productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it uh, I think Mises too, uh, who was an extraordinary teacher, uh, as well as as uh, and also very generous with students, and um, uh, I think they would have you know would have a have a tremendous impact. On the other hand. 
men like Mises and Rothbard, um, these these world-class geniuses, only come along pretty seldom in, in mm -hmm. history. And how lucky those of us uh, who are libertarians, who are Austrian economists, uh, are to to have had these two great geniuses, one right after the other. I mean, it's 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 uh, yeah. something very unusual. Harry Brown was very unusual too, and uh, we lost him far too soon. Um, he was a uh, very great man. LouRockwell.com, Mises.org. Lou, thank you so very much for being on the program today. It's it's such an honor to have you on the show. Alan, great to be with you, and send me more articles. I, I definitely, I, I do have one ready. I'm going to send you another one. But, okay, but we're, tremendous. I, I'm, I, we're, we're, we'll get you out on this question. It's the, it's the same question I've asked basically every guest we've had on the show to end the program. Is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> no. It's not? Oh, unbelievable. We are very pro-hot dog sandwich on this show. I can't believe it. I'm being rebuked by Lou Rockwell on the program. No, no. I mean, I, I like having a hot dog in a roll in a bun. Yeah. He said when I was a kid, that was a favorite of mine. Well, okay. So, 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 because you enjoy hot dogs, but you you're ad, you're adamantly that it is not classified as a sandwich. <laughs> well, I'm. You know, we can have many schools of thought in this area as well as others. Well, there. I, I think I think that that's a good politically correct answer to end the show on. <laughs> Lou, thank you so much, guys. We will be right back after this break. Have you ever been talking politics with a friend and told if you don't like it here, you should just move to Somalia? Well, ladies and gentlemen, from the sandy beaches of Mogadishu, Sherry and I bring you Postcards from Somalia, one of the newer products of Little L Productions, where we take on all of the fallacies of the people who say, if you don't like it, you can just get out. Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. Email us at tgsallenmosley at gmail.com. Guys, welcome back to the show for the final segment. And I just, I just, you know, I'm the type of host I like to instead of instead of like mealy mouthing around things, I like to just point them out. We've reached a new low of professionalism on the production end of this program. That people with ripped jeans are on the show. Look at that. Hey, look at that. I I would say I would say, hey, can we zoom in on that? But no, the producers but over here now instead of them over there, so we can't do it. <laughs> Um, uh, it, it's a fashion statement. What can yeah. I say? I used to be a rocker guy. I don't know. Or okay. I just need a new pair of jeans. Okay. Hmm? Yeah, all right. I don't have to explain yourself. It's always me. the right knee. I can never figure out why. You know, hmm. I guess it's because I always kneel down on the right knee. I spend a lot of time on the floor hooking things up. Spend a lot of time on your knees, do you? Not to you. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually, I actually had a quote pulled up that I I was going to mention when when we had Lou on, and I totally forgot it because it's it was so it was so good. It actually was just yesterday from the Mises Institute Twitter at Mises. Yeah. It's a it's a quote by H. L. Mencken. It's uh, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule it. And like that boy, does that not sum up the presidential hopefuls right there? Yeah. They're all. Like, everyone's platform is, the world's coming to an end, so this is how we're going to fix it. And that quote, like, nails it home yeah. so well. It really does. It really does. And, and I really can't stress enough, and we mentioned this on the show, I can't stress this enough. Um, 
if you're a young libertarian out there or you're just or you're just new to the school of thought and you're wanting to learn more there's just no excuse. You go to Mises.org, mm-hmm. and there's such a massive amount of resources available to you. Yeah. Um, so many so many articles, so many books, so many things in audio format as well, yeah. if that's your cup of tea, that's all made all made available for free for, there. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible nonprofit, and as it being a nonprofit, if you're the type of person that likes to likes to do a little charitable giving, hmm. uh, Mises.org is such a great place and to do that. It. Yeah. Um, so after you've gone to the goldstandardpodcast.com, click donate, typed mm-hmm. in 999-999-999-999, enter. Yeah. Then whatever you have left, which I'm sure is a ton because you guys are, are rich, yeah, yeah. just loaded. Our fans are just I mean, loaded. All, you're sitting here and you've got time to watch us. So. Yeah, exactly. When you're done with that, you go to Mises.org and donate to them. It's a nonprofit. It's for a great cause. It's very, very real and demonstrable ways that they're helping to spread the ideas of liberty. Yeah. Um, what did you think about Lou, by the way? Gosh. That guy was fortunate to meet some of the most incredible people in the yes. libertarian movement, inventors mm-hmm. of of, yeah. of the, the logic behind libertarianism. It's it's incredible. Yeah. You know, um, just it's incredible to get to meet people like that on this show. I mean, and you did an awesome job. And, I mean, it's, well, he's he's mind blowing. I know. I know that we've been trying to trim the runtime, and we've did, we've, yeah. we've done a pretty good job of trimming the show down more to like well, 40, 45 minutes. Time, but yeah, yeah. But this one was going to run long, but yeah. we have a good excuse because it's such a it's such a rare treat to get to have somebody yeah. like Lou Rockwell on the yeah. show. But not only that, I wanted to give him some time. We had discussed mm-hmm. this before the program. I I know this is shocking to some listeners, but believe it or not, we. Do plan a few things in advance. We try. <laughs> most, most things we don't, but some things we do. And one of them was is I wanted to give Lou a chance to tell us some stories yeah. of folks that you you've read their names, you've seen their books, you know their names, you hear you hear people cite them all the time. You hear a Tom Woods say all the time. Well, one of my biggest inspirations is is Murray Rothbard. Yeah. And so to be able to hear anecdotes from somebody who was there on the ground with these gentlemen mm-hmm. when they were. In, in in the prime of their intellectual careers yeah. um, is is very rare. It's very humbling. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I definitely think that sometimes some something that can get lost in a message is the character mm-hmm. and the character of the people who put it together. And that's not to say that a horrible human being can't write an economic treatise or whatever. Right. But in but we're actually really spoiled because actually they were fantastic human beings. Mm-hmm. They were fantastic people, incredibly inspirational, not yeah. just intellectually, but but personally. Yeah. And then the way he talked about Murray Rothbard just brought him to yeah. life, you know. And Harry Brown. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, I mean, every guest who's come on the show where we talked about Harry Brown mm-hmm. at all, I think everyone's opinion is exactly the same, both of him as a man and mm-hmm. of the fact that, man, where is Harry Brown today? Like, I mean, I know where he is today. He's no longer with us. But the next Harry Brown just I just never can't like these these bozos like if you think Bill Well deserves to even eat the grass that Harry Brown is walking over you you have no idea what you're talking about you're hmm. definitely not don't know anything about libertarianism um, it's such a shame but at least we have folks like Lou Rockwell with us who can who can remind us of the character and the impact right. of some of those folks yeah unbelievable unbelievable so really, you shouldn't even be watching this end of the show. You should just go back and watch the interview and <laughs> just then watch it again. Yeah.
And that's he yeah. said so much. Yeah. But guys, thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so. It's facebook.com slash TGS Alan Mosley. Twitter mm-hmm. is at Alan and Mosley, but you don't have to do any of that. You can just go to our website, which is thegoldstandardpodcast.com. That's we right. will see you next week.